Hey, hey, y'all. So I'm back here now to t continue talking about the mirror production and to get right into it, into uh, the second part of the second chapter titled Marxist Anthropology and the Domination of Nature. So Baudrillard starts this section by stating that in the 18th century, the simultaneous emergence of labor as the source of wealth and needs as the finality of produced wealth is captured at the zenith of enlightenment philosophy in the appearance of the concept of nature around which gravitates the entire rationality of the system of political economy which is a you know we can go from here and conduct some you know pretty fair marxist analysis of such things what purpose does nature serve in the um in this drive for profit in in uh, the conduction of capital, anything of that sort, which would which would make very good sense. I think it's a, it would be a fair analysis for sure. But Baudrillard, in his standard fashion, wants to throw this a little bit out of whack and think about the way in which, keeping up with the current of the last uh, video I did or talk I did, um, throwing us out of. Uh, kilter with what we might think to be a pretty traditional Marxist analysis towards like some benevolent type uh, systemic change. So this idea of nature comes into fruition for Baudrillard in the 18th century when it was discovered as, as a force for him, when it was discovered as something that precedes humans um, yet it is the source for all things human. I guess things all derive from nature it conducts us in a sense, and and these sorts of talks, you know, they they certainly continue on today with the internet experts, you know, guiding some kind of political uh, these political agendas by you know these these strange um, assertions that if there was such a thing as human nature, it would be something that can be you know justify political opinions, those that you know, exclude certain people from certain professions and exclude certain people from these, um, you know, political arenas. It, it, it's, all this derives, I think, in, in proper Baudrillardian fashion from this notion of nature as the ultimate referent, from this notion of nature as being that which guides us and can then be used as some sort of scapegoat, can be used to uh, justify you know, the contemporary use of force, the contemporary use of authority over the maintenance of certain, you know, norms, if you will, that don't want to be interrogated um, as being those things that come about socially, that things that don't exist necessarily in relation to nature, but are things that, you know, are ultimately just closed off from any sort of discussion, because as soon as you are able to make the point that something is um, has some affinity with nature because of nature's status as being this kind of, in Baudrillard's terms, ultimate referent, then you foreclose the possibility of that sort of dis discussion arising. The ability to, you know, essentially talk these problems through. Which is ironic given, you know, the kind of, uh, the 
suggestion that these people are arbiters of, of freedom of speech at the same time. It's very ironic, and it's incredibly difficult to unravel what exactly is going on there, but I digress. So nature in occupying this place of the ultimate referent for Baudrillard, uh, it becomes the ultimate reality, or becomes a reality in a sense in his, in his words here, which is an, an important thing for him to say, because reality is not something that somehow precedes simulation, right? In Baudrillard, reality isn't this thing that we can, like, go back to. Some people read Baudrillard as a, as a thinker of, you know, uh, as, as having a general degree of animosity towards simulation, thinking that there's something sequestered, or there's a general, like, obfuscation of reality, a kind of a loss, when in reality, in reality, uh, what we're actually seeing is the consolidation of a certain reality, right? So what Baudrillard is trying to get at is the foreclosure of possibility, in a sense. And in, in, in a way, it's very, it's very Deleuzian, right? Uh, it, it reminds me very much of Thousand Plateaus and, the, you know, how capitalism particularly closes off that possibility of becoming or, or getting out of one's territory, this process of deterritorialization or whatever. Baudrillard sees the similar thing happening, although he doesn't use that language, and he's a little bit more, um, he's a little bit more worried about, like, endless possibility or, like, endless... Uh, the lack of limits. But reality is that thing that forecloses the possibility of change, of, you know, life itself to develop, grow, evolve, or anything of the sort. So science plays a crucial role in this, in that nature sets forth the conditions for which that allows science to then affirm nature, and by extension because of the uh, fundamental connection that there has been established between science and reality, nature, you know, the logical principle of the code, as um, Baudrillard kind of defined it and I explored in the last episode. Science is something that um, is used as a strategy. It's a tool to, you know, it's very tautological, right? Science points to nature, which points to science, and, and they each affirm their um, position. And in Baudrillard's terms, science presents itself as a project progressing toward an objective determined in advance by nature. So in effect, science's goal is really, uh, has already been resolved, right? But if we think back to the consumer society, Baudrillard says that, you know, we, we only hold uh, value, those uh, institutions only hold value, uh, like, you know, GDP, whatever, because they can be... Uh, quantified, whereas things like women's labor in the household um, is not, no one cares about it, right? So it doesn't exist. I think that that points to a general cultural logic of, um, or a kind of obsession with, you know, quantifiability. And science does that. But there, there seems to be an odd desire to see science constantly be reaffirmed. So the project in itself, ironically, is not necessarily to affirm science as, as so, or as such, but in its constant proliferation and its, you know, progression through, um, you know, its own characterization as a thing in itself, through its 
observation of nature or the world or things as they manifest themselves physically or whatever which then reflects back onto it defining its character giving it an essence you know validating its presence making it legitimate all these things work in favor of this broader logic of cultural domination in the form of reality so with marx what we see with marx according to baudrillard is that uh marxism only partially dislocated the myth of nature and the idea, uh, idealist anthropology it sports, and those are Baudrillard's words. Whereas Marx indeed denaturalized private property, the mechanisms of competition in the market and the process of labor and capital, but he essentially failed to question the following naturalist presumptions, and they are as follows. The useful finality of products as a function of needs and the useful finality of nature as a function of its transformation by labor. And the reason for this is that Marxism, or at least the uh, economic system that it, you know, foresaw, that it that it sort of prophesized, was not one that challenged the generation of nature as this kind of productive force, or as this thing that exists separate from, you know, science or humanity or whatever, as that kind of transcendental ultimate referent from which all things derive, or in Marx's terms, is like the the mother. Of the, of the of the earth or, or representing that sort of uh, that sort of sphere. So what Baudrillard says of that, it looks as if forcefully rationalized nature reemerges elsewhere in an irrational form. Without ceasing to be ideological, the concept splits into a good nature that is dominated and rationalized, which acts as the ideal cultural reference, and a bad nature that is hostile, menacing, catastrophic, or polluted. All bourgeois ideology divides between these two poles. So this split works at the level of labor power for Baudrillard, whereas on one side, uh, when exploited, labor power is, is good. It is within nature and is normal. But once liberated, it becomes menacing in the form of the proletariat. So what he says of this is that this contradiction is averted by assimilating the proletariat to a demonic, perverse, destructive nature. Thus the dichotomy in the idea of nature which expresses the profound separation in the economic order is admirably recuperated at the ideological level as a principle of moral order and social discrimination. So it is in that sense that for Baudrillard, Marxism has not disencumbered itself of the moral philosophy of the Enlightenment. So although on the surface it might appear, you know, to present this radical alternative to production or to capital, some of the underlying themes are still present, right? And we went over some of these in the last one, but thinking about the way in which uh, we, the general anthropocentrism is just, just one uh, that permeates throughout, you know, Marx's, Marx's theories. So this, this simple bifurcation or dichotomization of nature or the, you know, the belief in there being a good use of labor, or labor as being something that can, you know, if used effectively, if used, you know, to the proper extent, can can do wonderful things. And this might be an obscure uh, reference, but it, it's one that captures it well. Uh, B. F. Skinner, the behavioral type psychologist, the um, conditioning psychologist, uh, wrote a book called Walden 2. And in this book, it's kind of a utopic society thing. 
and a group of people are visiting it. And it's, there's a lot to say about it, but one of the main characters of this visiting group is a philosopher who gets into all these arguments with the psychologist who runs this kind of, psychologist supposed to be B.F. Skinner, who runs this kind of utopic society. But that, that's not a here nor there. It's a funny detail, but as far as the book runs, uh, or what occurs in the book is that the, um, the visitors find that, you know, they only labor for two or three hours a day, three or four hours a day maybe, and the rest of the time they're left to do whatever they want. As though, you know, there is good labor or good degree of labor and then a bad degree of labor. Now, with all this being said, like, clearly exploitation is a thing that occurs in the capitalist mode of production, right? And it is something to be challenged. People shouldn't be working however many hours a week they do, 50, 60 hours a week. Like, that's characteristically absurd. And it'd be wrong to think that working less is not a good thing. But it's the equation with working less, or like a general, you know, uh, dissipation of labor, as, uh, as being the prerequisite or the catalytic move towards some kind of, like, better society just simply affirms labor as being something that can be, you know, used productively. And then all the other tenets that come with that, you know, thinking about labor in relation to nature, in relation to other species, in relation to minority groups, like how, do, how does that then, you know, continue on? And through the affirmation of labor, as I just mentioned, what other kind of malicious forces or tenets are being affirmed? So what is necessary instead is for Baudrillard an explosion, in his words, or specifically what he says verbatim is the concept of scarcity itself, the concept of necessity, and the concept of production must be exploded because they rivet the bolt of political economy, whatever that might mean, exploded. But he puts this exploding um, in contrast to dialectical movement or the kind of faith in the dialectical progression of history or whatever, as though it would lead to some better thing. And of course, we uh, there's an absence of Adorno here, but you know we think of negative dialectics or something as being, um, I guess, a response to just dialectics, plain and simple, moving linear, linearly through time. But what Baudrillard, excuse me, but what Baudrillard says is that no dialectic leads beyond political economy, precisely because it is the very movement of political economy that is dialectical. Like, you can't... Well, you can't take the tires off of, off a car while the car is moving. You, you, be, you can't do it because you could never get an actual grip of the movement of the car or of the dialectical progression of um, a thing itself. You, you must stop the car and stop that movement. Stop that. Uh, that progression or that, that linear type teleological movement through space and time. So Baudrillard takes this opportunity, well, from here he kind of moves back into his idea of symbolic exchange, where symbolic exchange was the guiding principle of uh, primitive. Every time I use that, that word, I'm using it in quotes because that's, that's not a term, that's not a good term at all, but in those primitive um, societies, whatever that, whatever that might mean, uh, there, was, there was the logic of 
symbolic exchange, right? And as we as we talked about them for critique, you know, think of potlatch, kulak. How how these things work in relation to um, you can it, it, economies, which is a term I reluctantly use, but economies in the pre-industrial era. So for Baudrillard, things that develop in relation to production, in relation to industrialization, for instance, is the law or a thing that develops. So he says that in this sense, law, which is called the foundation of the symbolic order and of exchange, results instead from the rupture of exchange and the loss of the symbolic, where things are now, you know, we think of, perhaps we can think of law as we've thought about reality or as the kind of consolidation of ideas, of beliefs or whatever, in the form of a, you know, authoritative type foreclosure. So this is why, for him, there's proper, properly neither necessity nor scarcity, nor repression nor the unconscious, in the primitive order, whose entire symbolic strategy aims at exercising the apparition of law. And I don't... It, he, there's another point, I can't remember exactly where he says it, but he says it could be in symbolic exchange and death. But he says that the only reason we have an unconscious, you know, a la Freud, is precisely because we have, you know, all these systems that, you know, force a certain, you know, um, I guess homogenization on us, if you will. It's our only, like, way to get out of it. But what he, he, he takes this opportunity then, and he does, he sees in Marx uh, a, a complicity with this sort of uh, repressive framework. And I'm, I use that term reluctantly as well. Because what he says is that Marx adopted the law of necessity, along with the Promethean vision of its perpetual transcendence, just as psychoanalysis adopted the principle of castration and repression, Prohibition and law. Now it's unclear at this point um, in this book because this this would have come out in seventy three. Although despite the year it came out, a year uh, after uh, Anti Oedipus, it's unclear whether it's not apparent here if Baudrillard had read Anti Oedipus. Uh, I feel like he wouldn't have had time to. You know, he was probably writing this the year that Annie Oedipus came out. But they're doing something similar. Where, uh, you know, Baudrillard sees in Freud, you know, the connection to castration, repression, the unconscious, in a similar way that Deleuze and Guattari see, uh, see it in Anti-Oedipus. Baudrillard sees a similar vein running through Marx, similar themes running through Marx, the adoption of these kind of transcendental, um, you know, irrefutable type, type systems or themes that guide um, and, and permeate and, and propel Marx's arguments. And as I say, I say this, I see in the footnote that uh, he does, he quotes, yeah, or he doesn't quote, but he mentions uh, Antiedipus here in a footnote. So he would have had to have read it, although he just quotes it. Oh no, yeah, he quotes the whole thing. So yeah, quote, cites the whole thing. Yeah, so he must have, he must have read it. That's interesting. Um, I, and I wonder, like, this is a side point. I, from Baudrillard's standpoint, I don't know what, you know, what his take of Deleuze and Guattari really was. He, he never had a whole thing about it, like with Marx or 
uh, Freud or even even Foucault. And I wouldn't I wouldn't know from the Deleuze standpoint. I think I'm pretty sure that Deleuze just didn't didn't care about Baudrillard. That it was just like you know hogwash, not totally you know unnecessary jargon and you know, our Chris Norris type thing, like the, um, Baudrillard is just stuck in the fun house, or he's, you know, not someone to be taken seriously, not someone to take seriously, but I digress. So it's when nature is, you know, given this sort of validity in Marx, just as, right, we think of the unconscious in Freud or psychoanalysis, that it is then used as this, repeat, ultimate referent, or in Baudrillard's terms, this separation from nature under the sign of the principle of production is fully realized by the capitalist system of political economy. But obviously it does not emerge, does not actually emerge with political economy. So he then goes on to say that rationality begins here when nature is established as this, this thing. It marks the end of paganism, animism, and the magical immersion of man, all of which is just simply reinterpreted as superstition and this is this is when you know we see this in marx when we think of the opium of the people you know the possibility that uh or the, the belief that religion is just this kind of thing that you know bread and circuses right keeps people numb stupid they can't do anything with it it doesn't you know there's no actual relationship to the world to, to things to production to you know uh, maintaining certain needs, which is a very, it's a very sad sentiment, as though, you know, there's nothing beyond production, there's nothing beyond the satisfaction of needs, there's no higher order, and I shouldn't, using, using the term higher is, is certainly problematic, but there's no, like, other, other order it's just all like the the world is just treated as like a map, right? And it's just like like an exegetical project that doesn't see you know anything beyond itself, right? It's just a constant evaluation of you know this thing as established as being natural or real or whatever that is the world or you know the things that ex exist within it, and that's all there is, and it's so boring and. You know, we think of the history of humankind, our relationship to gods, our relationship to beliefs, has been a very, it's been a guiding principle. And it would be, it's naive to simply disavow that, to forego our relationship with, with the gods, or with, in, you know, paganism or animism, especially especially if we think about this in relationship to, as just one example, like Native American people and the relationship that not every single Native American nation has with, um, you know, belief per se, or whatever we might call it, but certainly how people think of things differently across different, you know, epistemic boundaries or to across different epistemic locations or setups. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing then, at least what, what Baudrillard charges against Marx, is that we are not seeing so much sublimation or, you know, the simple, simply the closing off of, like, possibility in favor of, like, the ultimate, like, um, 
you know, productive individual, but rather we're seeing um, a desublimation where I guess all the energy of nature of, you know, whether it manifests itself in the form of human nature or worldly nature, whatever that might look like, all the energy associated with that comes out through us. And we exist just as science, you know, affirms the conditions of nature and by and then it's then mirrored back onto itself, we do the same thing, right? We manifest nature within ourselves. Which isn't to say that it doesn't, that it's like, you know, it has that sort of transcendental force, but that we give it such value, pay such credence to it, that it does do that, it does have real effects. And then we could say, well, of course, if we think of the way in which our relationship to, you know, gods, for instance, to stories, to myth, or, or whatever can also have that effect like this isn't all that surprising that nature can do that but for some reason nature is the guiding force for that sort of desublimation in the industrial epstein in the industrial epoch and that is precisely because you know you have the institutions of science whatever scientific observation deduction coming to the forefront and proclaiming in a very, in an ironically missionary type fashion that, you know, you have this thing that is unchanging, it's universal, it guides us, it comes out in our, you know, our relations between cultures, between people, between genders, and then people, you know, tend to not think maybe as much as they should about such things, and they just eat it up, like that's just it. As soon as the, it is told to them by a certain source, i.e., you know, scientist, whatever, or in the case of, you know, mental, or in case of the psyche, the psychologist, psychiatrist, or whatever, or like this is all Foucault at this point, but why is it that we hold these people to such high esteem, as though for thousands of years humans got by perfectly fine without it? It's really quite odd that, that, we, that we do that. And it's present here. And this is what Beaujard sees Marx failing to challenge. So in a sense, Marxism in trying to, or maybe I won't, capitalism in trying to um, close off contradiction, right, in favor of like a total operativity. What we are seeing, precisely if we accept Beaujard's thesis in that, you know, Marxism mirroring production or communism mirroring production, we are seeing the same kind of abolition of contradiction, which is ironic because contradiction is, you know, if it's the guiding principle of like capitalist exchange or whatever, I, I would be more, personally, I am more afraid of a, of a culture of a, of a system that's capable of eradicating contradiction than one that that is that has contradiction in it right because what you know what will remain when all contradictions have been removed to me that's just thinly veiled you know bomb the enemy type type rhetoric that is you know if we think of the history of most empires that is certainly a logic that permeates through it 
and this is only emphasized when you know Baudrillard writes of Marx that or Marxism he writes by pretending to illuminate earlier societies in the light of the present structure of the capitalist economy it Marxism fails to see that abolishing their difference it projects onto them the spectral light of political economy so Marx affirmed that it is on the basis of a critical return to its own contradictions that our culture becomes capable of grasping earlier societies Thus, we must conclude, and thereby grasping the relativity of Marxist analysis, that in Marx's time the system of political economy had not yet developed all its contradictions. Hence, that even for Marx, radical, radical critique was not yet possible, nor was the real comprehension of earlier societies. So, a contradiction is treated here, it, it's kind of problematic, right? As though contradiction is just the fundamental attribute of pre-industrial society, viewing them as being like kind of naive or, you know, childlike, which is, you know, what Marx does in the Gundrissa, right? When he says that, uh, that essentially pre-industrial people are children, likens them to children, and the industrial epoch is like that of, a, of an adult. Very problematic and odd analogy, but romanticizing this kind of contradictory uh, essence of this contradictory mode of being. So then, now, Baudrillard switches gears and he starts to think of Godelier. So Godelier was, and this is the person that Baudrillard takes, uh, people have said that uh, the quotes that Baudrillard uses aren't actually Godelier, or that they don't actually come from his book here, which, you know, people <laughs> clearly have a problem with, rightly so, however, you know, this is what we have. Uh, Godelier, for those who don't know, uh, I had to look it up. According to Wikipedia, um, he is one of the most influential French anthropologists and is best known as one of the early advocates of Marxism, Marxism's incorporation into anthropology. He do, he's also known for his field of work among the Barura in the Papua New Guinea from the 60s to the 80s. So we can begin by that little introduction to see what, you know, what problems uh, Baudrillard's going to have with this guy. Yeah, and specifically the translator uh, writes in one of the footnotes, I have not been able to locate the page references for any of the quotes from Godelier, which is Baudrillard, Baudrillard, Baudrillard. So those texts that Baudrillard uses from Godelier are, uh, or the Marxist texts, are um, Sur les Sociétés Précapitaliste and Anthropologie Economique in l'Anthropologie Science des Sociétés Primitives, which are just you know, thinking about primitive societies essentially. I haven't read them, um, but from the titles we get a pretty good idea of what they're what they're getting at. It's kind of traditional uh, anthropology, right? Seeing, you know, so-called primitive people as being test subjects or things to be observed in their in all their wonder and their naturality or their naturalness. The charge that Baudrillard levels against him though, and Marxist anthropology generally, is that it seeks from beginning to end to preserve materialist orthodoxy against the hearsay, hearsay of primitive societies. So what Godelier observes is that or what Godelier states that Baudrillard quotes be a little bit careful of because 
this quote may not actually exist, but here we have it. Under certain conditions, kinship is economy, and religion can function directly as a relation of production. So, in, you know, as we, as we heard earlier, or as Baudrillard explained earlier, thinking about how, you know, we put primitive people under the spectral light of political economy. So what Baudrillard says about this is that as much as saying, this is as much as saying that he cannot, Godelier, imagine the primacy of anything except through the primacy of the economy. Ironic, given a, uh, a Marxist approach. It seems as though, you know, Godelier's brand of Marxism is not at all actually interested in um, destructuring or destabilizing the economy, destabilizing all being related to this sort of economic base, the thing that, you know, guides and essentially um, sets the conditions for the superstructure, whatever religion, education, thought, belief to arise from. But this economy, according to the Marxist anthropologist, uh, stream indicative of Godelier, uh, the economy that permeates in these primitive societies is one of, I guess, subsistence, if you will, where there's no there's no surplus. So people take they take that as a as a model for which we can then uh, mirror or we can then use to craft our own um, economic system around. Like if they can do it, we can do it, as though all the other things in play, you know, as far as relations of every other kind might go, as though those things don't also play a role, because they're able to do that by stapling on the title of economy to it, which has a relationship to us, though arbitrarily, arbitrarily and only through language, really, only through the, the classification of a term, or the designation of the term of economy onto them, and then onto us, so then which is really just an aporia, but if we accept it, it's still odd, given that it doesn't consider all the other conditions at play, and why such a thing would not necessarily work across all boundaries. So it's this sort of romanticization that is that is really problematic, right? So of this, Baudrillard says that in, I guess, uh, in um, emulating the discourse or the rhetoric of the Marxist anthropologists, Baudrillard says that the savages are nature. When they have enough, they stop producing. This formula contains both perplexed admiration and racist commiseration. Moreover, it is false. Which is, I think, very fair in that we shouldn't, you know, think about other people in such terms, infantilizing them, making them a model for our own development, you know, I guess putting that labor onto them, or making them test subjects, if you will. And this sort of racist commiseration for Baudrillard is more dangerous than, you know, just killing people off, right, through disease or converting them, their religion, right? It makes them, it allows for that those things to kind of develop, right? by viewing them as being lesser, you know, as being naive, infantile type beings, then allows for us to do all sorts of unspeakable horrors to them, right? Let alone, you know, of course, 
we must interrogate like the role capital has played in exploiting people. Like there's no denying that. But how effective is Marx and Marxism at challenging that sort of exploitation? While it might not be an exploitation of resources as they manifest themselves physically, and it's an exploitation of, I guess, conceptual conceptual resources, right? Intellectual resources, which we shouldn't diminish the value of. We shouldn't say that it's you know less than things as they manifest themselves physically. And here we return to the discussion of symbolic exchanges. That just that thing that resists production as it manifests itself in like the Western context, at least at the time, or the thinking about Marx. Uh, symbolic exchange as being something that can't be mobilized, as something that's you know, intertwined with all the things mentioned earlier, sacrifice, you know, culture, whatever, um, that resists production as it manifests itself as an oppressive force, which is something we've moved beyond which is something that we can't, not to say we ever had it, you know, these white Europeans that aren't, have not been particularly good at crafting culture, but, uh, you know, certainly destroying it, which is a recurring theme through Western thought, through Western people's identities, you know, <laughs> But maybe there's something to be said about how destruction works too. No, I won't I won't give that idea any credence. That's a stupid idea. So symbolic exchange is just one example that Baudrillard problematically uses. Um, well he says that primitive man does not chop one tree or trace one furrow without appeasing the spirits with a counter gift or sacrifice. This taking and returning, giving and receiving is essential. It is always an actualization of symbolic exchange through gods. And what what is problematic? It's the um, equation with um, or the conflation of all uh, you know primitive people with this relationship to sacrifice or to the spirits, whatever the hell that means. But if we accept it, um, there's there's something to be said about the relationship between exchange as it may have manifested itself at some point in some cultures at some times and now. And what is essentially different is that um, exchange operates today on, on the realm of the material, right? You know, thinking back, religion is the opium of the people, kind of closing off that relationship with the gods, the relationship with things that don't necessarily, uh, you know, present themselves to us in a way that makes them easily digestible. Right, there was a certain faith in faith, if you will. So ironically, Baudrillard says that what, what Marxism fails to do is to see primitive people in their specificity, or to see um, their irreducibility to production. So the magical, the religious, and the symbolic are relegated to the margins of the economy. So, an interesting point. And one such example is, you know, contemporary obsession. I say contemporary, but, you know, it goes, whatever, the obsession with museums, where uh, the example Baudrillard gives is that, you know, we take things, uh, objects, whatever, artifacts, uh, cultural icons, out of their context, placed in museums, and they're supposed to represent 
art is just one example. So what Baudrillard says, this is done in the kindest, yet most radical way the world has ever seen. They have placed these objects in a museum by implanting them in an aesthetic category. But these objects are not at all art. And precisely, their non-aesthetic character could at least have been the starting point for a radical perspective on, and not an internal critique perspective, leading only to a broadened reproduction of Western culture. Hence, in the materialist interpretation, there's only a replacement of art by economics, the aesthetic virus by the virus of production and the mode of production. Whereas art could, you know, if we think of these different artifacts, icons, whatever, uh, they, they pose a, a radical challenge to, you know, Western finality, Western, I guess, um, Eurocentrism, Eurocentrism, Anthropocentrism, throwing all these things out of whack because all of a sudden we're challenged challenged by difference, by otherness, that essentially destabilizes our, our privileging of ourselves. But that is exercised, that is, that is essentially uh, conjured away in favor of an analysis of production, or these things as being simply things, you know, not being related to some kind of cultural order, higher order, just being, you know, economic objects, if you will. So for that reason, this anthropo... Um, what we see, what we are seeing, is the duplication and the replication of the same oppressive forces as they manifest themselves, like in the form of the museum, in this critique. So we naturalize earlier societies in a sense, and we place them under the sign of production. Right? We erase them, we level them, and you know, to make them e easily consumable, <laughs> making them commodities, if you will, just. You know, it's only um, made more apparent in the, you know, uh, hardcore materialism emblematic of Marxist thought. So what Baudrillard does with this is he, he wants, this, all this essentially culminates in the following questions, where he asks, or he states that the radical, the radical hypothesis no longer accepts fundamental concepts, seeing it as, seeing it as an arbitrary aspect of a certain model. At bottom, the question is posed as follows. Are we always within the capitalist mode of production? If the answer is yes, we readily accept classical Marxist analysis. Or are we in a later mode, so different in its structure, in its contradictions, and in its mode of revolution, that one must distinguish it radically from capitalism, while maintaining that it is always a question of a mode of production? which is determinate as such? Or are we, quite simply, within a mode of production at all? And have we ever been in one? So concerning the present phase of political economy, Marxist thought gives us only uh, analyses centered on monopolistic capitalism, not thinking about the possibility of, of other, uh, the other things going on underneath it, right? And although we see the a broad dissipation of symbolic exchange, these elements still can still be seen today. And how is that, or the disavowal of that presence, you know, made to serve Marx, made to serve Marx's view of the, of the world? So we think of the way in which uh, commodities are evaluated, you know, thinking about in terms of like 
Frankfurt School type thought, what we are seeing is, is a move, in a sense, away from materialism, per se, right? And as we were thinking about uh, the, the last, his last book for a critique of the political economy of the sign, we have to view, uh, we, we shouldn't just locate signs within the realm of production or being related to a specific signified, but how signs themselves, you know, make up a whole different world or a whole other uh, system that needs a whole other system of analysis. So which leads Baudrillard to say that the signified and the referent are now abolished to the sole profit of the play of signifiers, of a generalized formalization in which the code no longer refers back to any subjective or objective reality, but to its own logic. So we must ask then, thinking about those three questions posed, can it be said or can we apply the same kind of Marxist thought, the one that Baudrillard spent this whole book kind of uh, destabilizing, you know, this thinking about the objective world, about materialism, and what role does that even play? Because Marxism has tried to just simply uh, transpose its method from the realm of the material, however that might manifest itself, to that of signification in the form of commodity or exchange value or whatever. But in doing so, all it does is transpose what already fell short, according to Baudrillard at least, to a domain in which it is just so alien that it's it just is out of place. It just doesn't have the conceptual tools to approach its object or to approach its, you know, its own desire or its own approach. So we're seeing now, you know, as we saw in the last book, um, you know, the beginning of an analysis of simulation, right? What can be said of simulation? What role does simulation play in the realm of signs, where signs don't refer to some objective reality, but only refer to other signs, which refer to other signs? Copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, very basic Bulgarian theory. But how does Marx fall short on that? And this is something that we're going to get into with, with Foucault as well, and how applicable is Foucault's project that doesn't account for the simulating machines as much as it should, per se. So what this is all culminated into, in the case of both production and its antithesis that prophesized by Marxism, is, and this is a rather long quote, Baudrillard says that this terrorist rationality has produced, in the course of centuries, the radical distinction of the masculine and the feminine with the racial inferiorization and sexual objectification of the feminine. No culture but ours has produced this systematic abstraction in which all the elements of symbolic exchange between the sexes have been liquidated to the profit of a binary functionality, and this separation which has taken on all of its force with capitalist political economy is not reabsorbed at the present time. Sexual hyperactivism, equalization of the sexes, liberation of desire, in short, the sexual revolution, gives only the illusion of symbolic destructuring under the sign of sex as a differential marker, as an index of status as a, and as a function of pleasure. It is this mark that the women's revolt, or the gay liberation, aims at, not the claims, democratic and rationalist, of political or sexual rights to equality, the equivalent of the salary claims of the worker, not the accession of women to power, that is, the turning of the code to their favor, but the abolition of the code. Marxism has either ignored the subversion of the political economy of, the, of sex, that is, the imposition 
of the law of value in the sexual domain, the imposition of the phallus, the masculine, is the general sexual equivalent, or else it has dialectically subordinated it to economic contradictions, allowing all of its radicality to escape. So in that way, it's it, that, that, that erasure of the work that has that, that is being done, you know, subsuming it under the law of production, under the law of labor, however you would have it, and this is only, uh, this is made apparent, like with, and I've already mentioned this, but, you know, conversations I've had where people um, disavow, you know, culture as being a thing that exists outside of production, which is very dangerous idea as though like culture would just dissipate with the with the destructuration of production so and everything would comes to follow right where it's not that um, oppression is first and foremost conducted through production so for instance uh, Baudrillard says the objectification of the black fucking that language is terrible but uh, we have it as such is not that of exploited labor power but an objectification by the code or all those things that run under the current of production that run underneath that sneak in right the high humanistic logic of you know the anthropocentric uh, logic perm that permeates through Eurocentrism or anything of that sort that Marxist analysis does not get at, it does not approach, because it reduces all these ills to a single point, notably that of production. Now, Marxist theories that have developed post-Marx have tried to account for this, but they seem to, you know, and I think of Benjamin would probably come the closest. Like, there, there's a lot of really dangerous stuff like take Adorno for instance and his condemnation of like jazz music which is just subtle racism or not not so subtle but how it makes a mockery of like you know it should be viewed down upon or looked down upon because it's uh not Mozart just extremely racist Eurocentric jargon but I think that it's that is indicative of the greater logic of Marxist thought that just sees otherness as being like just getting in the way of this like what would ultimately be I'm in my mind although they don't say this white utopia white male utopia and all the privileges that will come with that but it's ironic because all these things already exist in favor of whiteness in favor of patriarchal uh, structures of authority which is really why we have to we have to question its its motives and what what it will result in if it has that sort of radical potential to it or if it'll just simply extend the same kind of logic of domination that guides or structures today so all this leads to Baudrillard concluding the book essentially by saying Marx is right objectively right but this correctness and this objectivity were one as in all science only at the cost of a miscomprehension a miscomprehension of the radical utopias contemporary with the manifesto and capital. In saying that Marx objectively theorized capital, capitalist social relations, the class struggle, the movement of history, etc., one has claimed too much. In effect, Marx objectified the convulsion of a social order 
its current subversion, the speech of life and death, the liberator of every moment, and a long-term dialectical revolution in a spiraling finality that has only the endless screw of political economy. In that, you know, we must be suspicious when people are, when things are explained all too well, right? Because to what extent does that rely on the uh, dissipation of the destruction of the exorcism of contradiction, which is what, which is an important facet to any more living, right? As soon as everything is subsumed in the logic of a certain um, linearity or authoritative type uh, finality, then we risk, you know, dipping into totalitarianism, any of these sort of scary type systems. So it's on that note that, that I think that we can bring this book to a close. Uh, there, there, there's a lot here. And for those that haven't read it yet, um, there's quite a bit more than I presented. Even though it is a, it is a short book, I remember when I, when I first read it, I read it, I think I read it in like one sitting, uh, 160 pages or so, but it's, it's good, and it's, it's, uh, it's clear, and it presents a side of Baudrillard that, that is, um, outside of his, or how people normally read him, I think. This book and the, um, his following one, which would be Symbolic Exchange and Death. Although I don't know if which one, either that or Forget Foucault, was written first. But, anyhow, the next one I'll, I'll be doing here will be Symbolic Exchange and Death. But there's a lot here, and, and for anyone that, that has listened this far or listened through this, um, for those that have read it or haven't read it, and there are general questions, I really hope that you bring them up with me. But if you have... Do you see, if you see any glaring holes in what I've presented here, I would certainly hope that someone would, would bring that up, even though I'm, I'm very familiar with the things that I um, skipped over, just for the sake of time, really. And to, to be fair, a lot of it is very difficult, and I have trouble, I have trouble grasping it uh, at times. Because Baudrillard is, is rather elusive, and he's not... In a sense, he practices what he, what he preaches. Like, there... There are contradictions here. There are errors. There are things that should be challenged. But thank God, because then it would just be it would just mirror the same kind of system he's trying to critique, or he's critiquing Marx for failing to critique or failing to challenge. But for anyone who made it this far, thank you for listening. I hope that it was helpful. It, w- it was good for me to go through this book again. It is one of my. I, I do enjoy it a lot. Perhaps it's, you know, as far as Baudrillard's books go, I could probably put like 10 above it that I prefer, but it it, it is a good one. But for anyone that did listen, thanks for listening. And if you have any gripe, any problems with what I did here, just you, you know how to leave it. Thanks. Bye.